You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we are talking urban design and the design review panel process. To have that conversation, I'm sitting down with Malcolm Mackay of Mackay Urban Designs. Malcolm is across probably more DRPs than anyone else in Western Australia, has a very extensive background in urban design and can give us the context that we need today to understand the background of DRPs, what's happening in that design review panel space, the impact it's making and some of the projects you've seen come through, not come through based on that and the improvements that are being made. On top of that, we'll have a chat about Perth's urban design in general and how it stacks up across the world, how we operate, where our pinch points are and what we value in urban design compared to other cities around the world. Malcolm, thanks so much for coming in, mate. Thank you, Trent. Thank you for for having me. Look, you're on LinkedIn with your thoughts just as much as I am these days and I have a big respect for the things you've been saying recently about how we do our urban design and how that is compared to developments across generations, centuries around the world. We're such an immature city when it comes to that space. How about you give us a bit of a flavor, if you can, for where you think Perth sits on the spectrum of urban design and compare that to some of the cities around the world we might have traveled to? That's a really interesting question because uh, Perth is quite different from uh, from a lot of other cities and particularly those cities that do have a, a grand tradition when it comes to urban urban design I'm often asked what what is urban design because there is no as far as I know there is no undergraduate course teaching urban design it's something that you come to having done either architecture planning or it's, it's a mix of everything and, uh, and I get myself into a lot of trouble which which I enjoy doing and hence the link Hence the LinkedIn posts, because I like stirring the pot. <laughs> it stimulates debate, and that debate is what we need. It's what we need in uh, Perth abso- right now. Absolutely. Urban design is an umbrella discipline. It covers everything about the built environment, and that architecture, landscape architecture, planning are subsets of urban design. They sit under the umbrella. You may get a lot of comments from some of my colleagues about, about that one. They, they often see it the other way around. But the reality is urban design is about stepping back and looking at the bigger picture. It's an and, outcome and of all of those disciplines, right? It is, absolutely. They, they, they're all required to create a good urban design outcome and one discipline alone cannot, cannot deliver it, uh, even if they think they can. When describing Perth, I hear you use the word eclectic a lot. For me, eclectic means uh, everyone has their own rules, no real theme to it, multi-cyclical, multi-generational, multi-style outcome when it comes to Perth. And, and look, to be honest, when you compare it to those major cities like Barcelona, like London, like Paris, you probably couldn't explain Perth in any other way than eclectic, could you? No, and you're absolutely right. That is what makes Perth interesting in its own way. And as I, as I said earlier, I, I kind of come from the, the grand tradition of urban design. I was brought up in the European tradition. I, I studied in the UK, worked in the in the UK and, uh, and, and Europe um, a, a bit as well. And I travel extensively 
to uh, to Europe because I just I just love European cities. It's my it's my thing. But those cities are an urban environment. They date back you know, hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. There's a grand tradition there of streets that are are relatively relatively tight. And buildings are sort of packed together. It you can trace it back to an era where I could, you know, cities were defensive mechanisms because they were regularly being looted and pillaged by uh, by, by the neighbours that uh, everyone walked and therefore walkability was the, was the driver and hence the, the density of them and their architecture was very much of that particular place because it was derived from the relatively simple construction techniques that they knew and the materials that were available. But there also seemed to be an ability, whether it was through the fiscal ability or through political ability, to put design first, even over practicality at the time. As you see, most of these cities wouldn't be approved these days the way they were approved those days when it comes to bushfire at risk or accessibility or servicing, all that. Whilst it seems like the beauty of these cities was paramount when they were designed. It it was certainly very important. There was two factors at play. One, they had a a relatively limited frame of reference. So they didn't have planning, a planning system to start with, and they had a limited supply of material materials, a limited amount of knowledge, and that lent a simplicity to everything. And there's a beauty that comes out of simplicity. Um, The other aspect is that people's properties, and particularly for wealthier people, uh, their property was their only way that they could show off their wealth maybe art, which was inside the property too. But they didn't have the, the cars or the yachts and all the other trappings that we have to display our, our status in life. And so a lot of measure was placed on the appearance of, uh, of buildings. Well, let's uh, talk about the facades of some of these European buildings five, six hundred years ago. The front facade of a building was a piece of art, a paintwork and a painting. It was, uh, and, and architecture was considered an art at, at that time. Here it's considered more of a, a science or a service these days, but it was very much an art. And, and interestingly, if you know, if you go back to sort of the Renaissance era in, in Europe, art and architecture were almost indistinguishable, and in that uh, the, the elevations of uh, major buildings incorporated carvings and sculptures and, and, and works of art. Uh, they, they were integrated. These days, uh, we pay 1% of the project value to the local government, and they put a a, a pile of steel, and there's a complete divorce from uh, between art and architecture, which is disappointing. Uh, yeah, I think. well, and look, that's where you start to move to the 21st century, where build costs are significant. We have to think about things like sustainability these days, and everyone's rooms are much larger with so much more amenities. So the buildings that that we're, the homes we're building are far more expensive because they have far more in them as well and it doesn't just sit in Perth there at those limitations I look at places in Europe these days where on one side of the street you would have this beautiful homogenous neoclassical building on the other side you've got a rice bubbles box that was built 10 years ago because of the cost it's very functional it's fantastic when it comes to that sustainability space but it looks like a factory and that is 50 apartments where people live and spend far more on their apartments than we do. Yes, and, and, and therein kind of lies the irony is that uh, European cities are becoming more eclectic. Mm. And certainly, whilst they're sort of retaining their sort of historic core, when you go to the outskirts, they're looking increasingly like denser versions of Perth. Where they're they're becoming more functional. It's more, more functional and, 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 and the modern way of life. But they are becoming more eclectic because there is a lot more choice. And I think that, getting back to Perth, I think that's one of the really interesting things about Perth is that we have so much choice. Uh, we, uh, as an architect, 
effect uh, here in Perth, you're not limited by one or two materials or, or one particular style that's evolved from the place. You've got the entire internet as your reference for uh, you know how a building should look and and work. I think Pinterest is probably the, the largest influence on architects now than any anything else. And in the Perth context, that's not un, particularly unusual because. Perth has always been somewhat eclectic. We are a city of predominantly of migrants, and you know we've got people that have come from the from the UK, or they've come from come Italy, or you know, all 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 over the place, and they brought with them their uh, particular views on what architecture should be. Their context, their, their preferences. Con- yeah, their their cultural context, and so Perth is to some extent a, a large melting pot of these cultural influences. It's also the timing, right? Now you've got. I'd say more than half of Perth's dwellings would have probably only been built in the last 30, 40 years. And if they weren't, something 100 years ago might be knocked down for that as well. We don't have a huge value on heritage in the same way that cities in Europe, for example, do because most of the properties that you might consider heritage in Perth these days are small post-war cottages that would have far less amenity or value than the heritage we think about in Europe, which is maybe three, 400 years ago and part of a homogenous design context. But at the same time, you look at places like St. George's Terrace and the heritage we've lost from that street by replacing it with significant brutalist office buildings is something that is quite sad at the same time. I think it is sad. You could argue that, that, that that's progress. And so we have to accept that architecture goes through uh, cycles and, and, and fashions like everything else. I think what then sits behind that is, is the question of is it just fashion or is, is there something more fundamental? And uh, and how do we get back to that notion of, of, of beauty rather than just being super superficial? And a lot of the, the places that we think of as being beautiful places around the world have come about out of simplicity and out of a lack of choice. And the, the irony is that in having more choice here and having such an eclectic environment, we've lost the, the markers as to where as to where beauty is and how do we deliver beauty. The the irony is we could probably create a far more beautiful place if we turned around and said, you can only use these three materials. We would have an identity. 20 or 30 years of development, you start to develop an identity. And if you look back at the areas that we consider as, uh, as heritage areas, um, and the, you know, particularly the inner suburbs, you know, the buildings in there, they basically have three materials mm. and they have a, a consistency of proportions. There's a high degree of consistency between the buildings and that is what lends them their, their particular character. So, Do you have any examples in Perth where you see significant urban design value that is being retained or should be retained? Look, I think it's, it's an ongoing debate about, you know, particularly you know, what people refer to as those as the heritage areas, those, those older suburbs. It's a real area of conflict because these are often the areas that are closer to the CBD and are the ones that are most suited to um, infill redevelopment, yet they are the ones that have the buildings that, that everybody loves because they have a beauty to them. I think for me, the, the real challenge is to say, well, they may be beautiful, but they're small and beautiful. Can we replace them with something that's large and beautiful? For me, that's the way forward. And we're not, we're not doing that. We're, we're basically replacing these small, beautiful buildings with large, unappealing or soulless buildings. Mm. And the community is going, no, nah, don't like that. Mm. And we're not moving forwards. And for me, I think that's one of the ongoing challenges. And it's one that I've been pursuing particularly through the LinkedIn 
posts that I've been doing and challenging this this, this notion of of beauty. Um, if you if you talk to architects, architects are taught in a funny way. If to be a really good urban designer, you actually have to unlearn uh, a lot of what you learn at architecture school. Uh, but I, architects aren't are, are told that. Um, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's very subjective. It doesn't really exist. And, uh, and, and architects are encouraged to do their own thing. Uh, it's, it's creative license to do your own things, which is, which is fine. But when you have 30,000 architects all doing their own thing in the same place, you end up with something that's very inconsistent. It's eclectic in its nature. So this, this eclecticism and this notion of beauty are, are at odds each other. I think for me the real the real challenge then is how do we start to uh, introduce the concept of beauty back into architecture and convince architects that beauty is something to be proud of, not something to be ashamed of. But it also comes down to practicality. I think if developers had an unlimited amount of money or at least were incentivized some way through the planning system to be able to invest into beauty as well as form and function, then I think you would see more of it because there is obviously a level of ownership and ego in the ability to build these beautiful landmark buildings. If there was a capacity through the feasibility of a development, whether it be through more open-ended height capacity, for example, where better yield would be available to be able to deliver more for the, the building's beauty, there would certainly be an opportunity, I think, for that outcome. However, you know, we can segue to it soon. There are limitations in WA's planning system that require a developer to focus on simply delivering a product rather than delivering the most beautiful product they can. I don't think three, four, five hundred years ago, given there wasn't much of a planning system, that was much of a restriction. No, and I think you go back three or four, five hundred years, and, and, and beauty was instinctive. We all, as individuals, we can walk down the street and go, wow, none of us have been taught that. It's in us. It's, it's innate. Uh, so there are some fundamental rules, and it's around proportion and, and, and simplicity and elegance and um, materials and visual interest and textures and colors. And uh, so there is, there is stuff that we can, we, we can work with. When I think about Perth's heritage, I look to town centres in places like Claremont, Fremantle, Bassendine, Midland, a little bit of Vic Park, but not a lot these days. There is some theme commonality in in their localities with regards to the buildings that have remained that still exist there. And I know that a lot of these local governments are at pains to look to try and keep a theme in the way that they build out the rest of the the environment in terms of the built form in terms of the footpaths the color of the the bins and the pavement and all that sort of stuff tries to still tie in with that that's the limited history and urban design themes and commonality i think we have the rest of it for the most part other than some parts within uh, city mall is suburban area that is your four by two or three by one brick and tile house that's been built in the last 40 years there's not really a lot of urban design value in a lot of that is there i think there is a lot of interest out there in being able to to, to make it better and i think it gets to the heart of what urban design is all all about i think it's significant that uh, we now have 10 design principles uh, enshrined in the planning framework the first design principle is context and character and, and that character is a really important word. The last principle on the list is aesthetics, which is what does it look look like? So th- there is a 
strong interest in being able to create more appealing and more beautiful built environments. I just don't think collectively we have the skills to do it. I, well, you think about the way it's assessed, right? There are two pathways to have a development application approved. One is to meet a planning metric and the other is to go down a design principles path. Now, as I understand it, if you develop a building that meets the planning metric of size mainly and function, then very little weight gets put on the design side. You pretty much get an automatic approval if your home is small enough and meets enough setbacks and has the amenity required. Then you don't have a lot of weight that is put from the assessing officer who is a planner, not an architect, especially for single houses, especially for small-scale development. A lot of this has no touch point with someone from a design background, does it? It doesn't. And I think that's that's been one of my criticisms of the way things are produced in WA in the 30 years that I've been here, that it has been largely driven by the planning process framework, which is essentially a a suite of policies, and in some cases rules, but mostly policies, uh, set a a sort of a general envelope for for what's deemed to be acceptable. Um, But what's deemed to be acceptable last year isn't necessarily what's uh, deemed to be acceptable this year, because society moves on. We have have great expectations, the economy changes, things change. But when we have had a planning framework that's really been creating things that are about convenience, utility, and avoidance of conflict. And there has been very little focus you know, on, on the quality of, of, of development. And I think that's where two main initiatives in the last decade, which have been really significant, have been the, the introduction of the, uh, the 10 design principles, which is now the Bible for design in, in WA, but also the establishment of design review panels. For me, design review panels are probably the most important and most significant improvement in the planning framework um, because it's now introduced design into the planning debate and into the process where before it was all about do you meet this list of provisions in in, and it still is in a way right there is still that pathway that if you meet the required minimum standards of setbacks and height and square meterage of bedrooms and uh, outlooks and uh, some uh, natural ventilation and, and sunlight then you don't really have to spend a lot of time worrying about design that leads me to the next question which some people would look at as red tape but other people would look at as uh, really uh, beneficial because i do see it as beneficial and as you've mentioned we have design review panels these days they sit across a lot of the larger projects would there be scope would there be benefit to availing opt having an ability for an opt-in even if it was even just an option for every building application, whether it was a single house all the way up to the apartment buildings that are already being subjected to a DIP, to have access to a design review panel if you wanted to pay for it to get uh, some expert advice. Absolutely, I think uh, I think that would be a fantastic initiative um, and placing design uh, foremost in in people's minds. Uh, One of the issues here in Perth is we've never really developed a design culture. Design is something that people in black skivvies um, and turtlenecks turtlenecks do uh, in a studio somewhere. When you go to other other countries and even other cities in in Australia, you go to Melbourne for example, there is definitely a design culture in Melbourne and uh, and Adelaide as as well and it's growing in, in, in Brisbane but you know you go to you go to Europe and there's a very very 
strong design culture. You go to Japan, there's a very strong design culture. So I think that's, you know, that needs to be worked on. And anything we can do to, to improve that culture would be good. As far as, uh, as, as, as buildings are concerned, yes, you're absolutely right. There's, um, there's essentially two pathways through the planning framework. There's the deemed to comply, or the acceptable outcomes uh, approach. Which is basically you tick all of the all of the boxes in the in the planning checklist, and hey presto you get your you get your approval, or you do something interesting, more ambitious, uh, you know, more more creative, and but you you refer back to the principles, and then uh, something gets assessed against those principles. More subjective. Uh, it, it, it it is more subjective, and that's where DRPs uh, would be valuable. DRPs, not planning officers. Exactly, because uh, you start to introduce the the design discussion and debate. Unfortunately, right. the situation is whilst you can go down both pathways, at the front line in the local government area, it is still the planning officer who has no design background assessing you against one of the, one of the two pathways. Yeah, and doesn't seem correct to me. No, and one of my um, and it highlights one of my favourite phrases that mere compliance is not enough. And I keep meaning to get a T-shirt printed with that with that written on that I'll wear to I'll wear to design review panels. For me, that encapsulates that notion that yes, we have a planning framework that says well, these if you do all of these things, then that's acceptable. But it's actually not enough. What it does the the outcomes is not a manual for good design. Uh, it's merely just a, a checklist. Uh, it's in, a control basis, really. Yeah, and so you can have something that. Is, uh, that is completely compliant with the, the R codes, but you wouldn't want it built next door to your house. Uh, you know, it, it, it's unappealing. And so, so mere compliance is not enough, and that design culture actually becomes really, really important. And that's where you know, the, the value uh, that design review panels can add in, uh, in guiding people to, uh, to a better designed outcome. Let's talk about that value. I've been subject to quite a few DRPs these days across different cities, most of the time either through an apartment development or a childcare center application. And I've definitely got experience from my side where we've seen considerable assistance from the DRP. Some people see it as a, a roadblock or a distraction or why do these guys get to comment on it? They're not even going to give me an approval anyway. But uh, I've learned to appreciate the value that the more consultative DRPs provide because most of the people that are on these DRPs genuinely want to help provide better outcomes. They want to help the developer have a better outcome as well as the city. And a perfect example is my architect put forward a plan that I was amenable to, wasn't super excited about, but amenable to with our childcare center in Morley. That was sent to DRP because the City of Bayswater makes you go through a DRP or maybe even two or three if you need a bit of a journey to get there. And I can genuinely say that we went from what was a fairly inefficient design, uh, not to mention the design outcome of the aesthetics, to one that was far more efficient, even cost less to build and looked better by the end of it because of the external assistance the experts in the DRP provided my architect who was working in his own silo at the time. I think that's a great example where a DRP can work together to provide everyone a better outcome. And that's entirely consistent with um, all the feedback I've received 
my partner Manera and I, we sit on around 20 DRPs between us. And, and so we, we see a lot of stuff come through the system, uh, hundreds of projects a year um, coming come through the system. We see where they start when they first come in, uh, the advice that is then given, and we see how, what they look like when they to the end of the, end of the process. And they, uh, they, the, the improvement is generally um, massive. Uh, you, know, you, you see a huge uh, increase in the quality of design from start to finish. It doesn't always mean extra cost, though, does it? No, and uh, I often argue that uh, good design can actually be uh, more cost-effective than bad design. One of the things that uh, we see a lot is uh, an architect picks up a project and they basically throw in everything they can possibly think of because they've also always wanted to do one of these. And it's trying too hard and it's got all sorts of bits stuck on it. And my mantra is elegant simplicity. And again, that goes back to my urban design roots and, and, and you know, the Europe interest in, in European urban design, where the buildings are very, very simple. They are elegantly proportioned. They don't shout. You know, they all work, all work collectively. And as a result, they're not, they're not expensive. Um, so good design doesn't necessarily have to cost more. And in fact, good design could potentially be cheaper than a, than, a, than a bad design. Let's talk about these DRPs in a bit more detail. Firstly, when did they start coming on? When was the first DRP you sat on? The first DRP I sat on, it's got a 2010 job number. I've been sitting on them for, for 13 years now. So it's been around for a while. Talk us through the makeup of these DRPs, who sits on them, what happens. For someone who's never been to a DRP before, who's nervous about it, it's coming up in two weeks, can you give us a bit of a walkthrough to how it goes for that applicant? Some of them have been around for a long time. Uh, I, I think the uh, the longest standing ones are South Perth and Cottesloe from, from memory. They've been around for, for decades. There was a, a huge change in the middle 20-teens when uh, the, the Design WA suite of documents came out. And that, uh, as part of that, um, state government started encouraging local governments to have design review panels. And so they have the number of them has grown exponentially in uh, in in the last uh, seven or eight seven or eight years. Um, there are cities that have only just adopted it in the last year. Absolutely, as well. Yeah, and there's uh, and there's some still, pretty big cities, and there's still some uh, some local governments who don't have a have mm. a DRP and are, are still thinking about it. And I'm sure they'll get there in the end. And I, I'm of the view that every local government should have access to uh, a, a design review panel because I have seen the benefits um, mm. that that they deliver. Um, so a design uh, review panel is uh, is generally made up of a, uh, a selection of design experts. Uh, they are predominantly architects. Um, I'm of the view that a panel that's made up of all of architects uh, isn't as effective as one that has other disciplines on it as well because my urban design heritage and this belief that urban design is this umbrella about the whole of the built environment, it needs to consider landscaping, engineering, sustainability, and uh, they vary from panel to panel, So, and, and they all work slightly differently, and I think that's fine because every place is different. Are they uh, political? Uh, they're not political, generally. Who appoints the panel members? The uh, the panel members are appointed by uh, by the local government. So, there is, there so is they also... could be handpicked by our politically... Yeah. 
biased yes, local government. Yes, and uh, look, look, there has been there has been one example that I know of, uh, and I'm not going to mention names, but uh, there is one example that I know of where there has been uh, arguably some political interference in that. But I think as a general rule, they're not political. That, I bet I could guess what that city was, Malcolm. I'm we not, won't talk about it. No, I'm no not, surprises. No, no, I'm not going there. Yeah. <laughs> I think we both know we both know where that is. Yeah. In general, they're not political. A transparent selection process. There's criteria. And I guess most people on that panel would have a level of pride about the idea that they are independent. Fiercely independent. I, I make it perfectly clear that my opinions are viewed without fear or favour, uh, that I will, as a design review panel member, I will tell you what I think. And honesty is uh, is a really important part of it. And the feedback I've had from applicants is that they really appreciate the honesty because it has saved them a fortune in, in some cases that they've actually heard what they've suspected but uh, about their design, but to hear it from someone other than their own architect, to hear it coming from someone else, they've gone, yeah, no, that's, this isn't, this isn't a great way of moving forwards on the design. Let's do something different. Are DRPs a, an environment where it's quite consultative, where you can have frank conversations, or do you sit there, listen to the DRP, and then you go home without an opportunity to actually ask real questions and, and get real value that you might be seeking yourself? Is it, is it a stuffy environment, or is it a, a quite uh, a relaxed environment? To be honest, it varies from panel panel to panel. Some of the panels and some some of the panel members are more of a process. It's it's a bit more formal uh, in, in in the way it happens, and they tend to provide comments rather than engage in in discussion. Or uh, and in some cases, some members are, are reluctant to suggest design improvements. They just provide comments and leave people to figure out what, what that actually means. I have a completely different view on that. My view is that uh, it's really important for panels to provide the best guidance that they possibly provide can. Provide solutions, not problems. I didn't, and we're not, we're not there to tell people how to redesign their buildings, but you know, if, if we see an idea, if we think of an idea uh, that could be done, by all means suggest it and say, look, you know, you don't have to do this, but here's something that you might want to consider. Are they expensive and, processes to go through? Does the applicant pay for it? Uh, again, it varies from local government to local government. Um, some local governments charge for it. Uh, some offer it for free. Um, My experience is it's a few hundred dollars to a thousand dollars, something like that. It's not a huge impost it, on it, a project. You get a lot of value for money. Put it this way, if I had to have an hour of Malcolm Mackay's time, I'd probably be paying that straight away anyway. <laughs> uh, and, and, and you're not just getting my time. You're getting five you, people. You're, you're getting you know, potentially up to five people um, giving you that, that advice as well. So it is a very cost-effective way. And again, uh, applicants appreciate that. They're, they're getting uh, very cost-effective advice. To drill back down to it again, the DRP is assessing your application from a design perspective. They are not giving an approval or a refusal. They're giving commentary and recommendations on design. And they're working to me across the 10 principles, right? So the response, the feedback that you would get normally that I've received is a letter that would have a table with 10 rows and a traffic light system that would have a red, green, or an orange against it. Is that how it always works? Again, it varies from panel to panel. They all operate slightly differently. But in these days, uh, I think certainly all the panels that I sit on, um, everything now is geared around the the 10 principles of uh, SPP7. I was a little bit sceptical, I admit, at first when that first came in because I I tended to operate on on strengths and weaknesses. But in these days, I tend to use the, the 10 
10 principles. I find them a very convenient way to uh, to review things. But also it, it's become a, a useful standard in engaging with the planning framework and then ultimately with the decision makers. So we're all on the same page when we talk about the 10 principles. Is it imperative to leave the DRP with 10 green ticks? Is it a necessity to get those ticks for an approval from the planners? And does getting those 10 ticks mean you'll automatically get an approval? It's an interesting question. I personally, I, I hate the uh, the traffic light system. And I've argued for years that uh, we should get rid of the, the traffic light system. But the planners don't understand it. They need to consume it in some way as well, right? Yeah, to be honest, in all of the DRPs that I sit on, I've seen 10 greens only a handful of times. So the answer is no, uh, you don't necessarily have to have three greens. I think the important thing is, has the, from a design review panel's perspective, is have you enabled the project to be the best version of itself that it can possibly be? Uh, So we're not seeking perfection. We're not seeking perfection. And I think there's there's a danger in the design review panel process of assuming that every project can be brought to the level of a Pritzker Prize winner and be on the cover of international architectural magazines. That's not the threshold. That, that's that's not the threshold. There, there's a, there's a threshold of, of pushing people as far as they can reasonably go. Now, when we see extremely talented architects come through the DRP system, and Perth does have uh, some some really really good architects, they will end up producing an exceptional piece of piece of work. We see other people uh, come through the system that might be a couple of years out of drafting college and, uh, and are really at the very beginning of their careers and perhaps a little bit out of their depth. Um, and we, we help to get them as far as they can possibly get. But we know that they're not going to win our architectural awards at the end of it, but they will deliver a building that's at least acceptable. And uh, and, and so it's, it's, it's horses for courses. But we're always pushing as far as we can, but not pushing people too far expecting something that's that that can't be achieved okay so it's there as a guiding assisting value add process but it's not a a stage gate where if you can't get through the drp you can't get an approval it's supposed to support the application rather than be one that is controlling an ability to get approved in the first place yes i think that's a that's a fair summary and look when you look at the decision making process um you know when something gets to the council or to the jdap there's a, a huge range of, of things to take into consideration. You've got the you know the, you've got the aims and objectives of the of the planning scheme. You've got all the principles in in the in the, the planning policies. You've got the the clause sixty seven provisions, of which there's about thirty of them, uh, of which d- design is just one one element. And, and obviously for me, it's a very important element, but it is only one one element. And the decision makers are looking at other things as as well. In fact, that's that, that's for me that was one of the reasons why I was so frustrated as a um, as a JDAP member. I spent four years as a, as a JDAP member. But for me, being a decision maker, you were at the end of the process. Design was just a small component of it, and I found myself in, in the position where I was looking at something that was consistent with the planning framework. It might have been an ugly building that I didn't like the look of, uh, and I could see heaps of scope for improvement, but there really was... By that point, there was no opportunity to, to change it mm. and, and improvement, which I found frustrating. And then that's why I moved more into design review panel 
area because you do get a chance to get in early at the beginning of the process, help people and uh, influence, in, in, the outcomes. influence the outcomes and improve the quality of design. Well, let's go overarching now to how Perth might improve its outcomes. There's a couple of themes that we've recognized in our conversations outside this podcast that seem to be quite unique to Perth in a way and maybe holding us back from having the best outcomes, the best design, and also solving what is our largest problem, our most critical problem right now, housing supply. We've been at the forefront of recognizing a couple of things. One, a pathological pushback on height in Western Australia in certain areas, but also a requirement that once you receive height, there is some sort of setting back of levels once you get to a, a certain space, which you've called a, a, the cake layer effect, which has so many impacts on design and functionality and waterproofing and all these sort of things. Uh, do we see this sort of pushback across the rest of the world when it comes to height? And we, do we see similar solutions to ameliorating height around the world as well? And is this what's holding us back from truly having a beautiful, modern, functional, mobile property market and finally i know many questions in here is it inevitability anyway is it just something we're all going to have to accept height is coming because it's all the way around the world the only solution unless you want to continue to broaden your city yes in in, in wa there is an unholy obsession with with height uh, and, and, and people are, are terrified of height apparently there is a word for it it's called batophobia uh, yeah, right. which is the, the fear of tall things it, it is evident here it's not as bad as it as it used to be uh, i think as a, a society we are changing and we are becoming more acceptance of height in in particular locations and, and in particular forms the ability to go up as a designer, actually enables you to create better design outcomes. What we have here is uh, we put restrictions on height and then we put restrictions on, on, on setbacks. And when when you put... Plot ratio. And, and, and plot ratio and, and restrictions. And if we go back to that sort of grand European tradition that, that I started with, uh, the normal approach to um, designing a site is that you build up to the street... Uh, so you become your building becomes part of the wall of the street, the containment of the, the street. And the streets are they're our spaces. They're the, the, the public realm. They belong to all of us. Um, they're the places where we engage with with each other. And so what you're doing as an architect, as a designer, is uh, is providing part of the wall of that space. We build boundary to boundary. Um, so we our building rubs shoulders. Think of Notting Hill. I'm thinking of Notting Hill right now. You can think of any European yeah. any European city. And uh, that means that you use the lot very efficiently. Uh, and it means you don't have to go to the back of the lot because if you can go to the sides, you don't have to go to the back. And if you don't go to the back, you can have a garden at the back, which means that you can put, put trees and grow vegetables and do all of the, all of the other good green things that uh, are important in a, in a city. And then what the height allows you to do is to get to the yield that you need for it to be a viable project. And a good quality project. And a good quality project, but without sacrificing the landscape at the back. But what we do here is we squash buildings down with a height limit, which means when you squash them down, it's a bit like squashing a, a, a lump of jelly down. It just goes sideways, and so it, it spreads out. See you later, trees. And so we lose all of the green. We lose the green space, and we we press up against the boundary, and then we have the privacy issues associated with building to the boundary. Whereas going up uh, in a 
enables us to, uh, to avoid those problems. As to why height is an issue in WA, I think it's because most people in WA, uh, and particularly those who were born and brought up here, were brought and brought up in a, a suburban environment. Um, and so the suburban environment becomes the benchmark for everything else. People don't like change. And, uh, yeah, the, the thing about Perth uh, and WA in generally, people here is they, they like what they know and they know what they like. And so if you've been brought up in a suburban environment, it's what you're used to, that becomes your benchmark for ev- for everything else. And therefore, uh, creating an urban environment is weird. Uh, it, it's a bit strange. And uh, unless you've Intrusive, nearly. Yeah, and if you, unless you've traveled extensively and experienced you know, European cities and, uh, and, and older cities around the world, you don't really understand how it works. So I, I think that's one of the cultural issues that we have to get over. And a lot of that is embedded in the planning framework as well. So the, the R codes and other planning policies are all derived from that, that uh, bias that, that bias towards a suburban environment. And so a lot of the planning framework is sort of saying, well, how can we create an urban environment without creating an urban environment? And we end up with something that's neither fish nor fowl. And I, th- I think that's, a, that's very much a hallmark of a, a lot of development in WA, both out in the fringe and uh, in, in the inner area, that we're, we're scared to do urban. Uh, we can't afford to do suburban anymore. And we're just in this sort of hybrid that's neither one thing nor the other. So will it be an inevitability that one day, whether we like it or not, as a society, we will just, we're just going to have to build up? I think we're going to have to build up. We're always going to have to get used to it and suck it up. Yes, and, and things things will things will change. I think younger generations are more um, aware of um, the world around them. They're more aware of sustainability issues and that the city can't just keep expanding forever and ever and ever out in, in into the bush. We do have to go up. Now, for me, the really interesting question is then, how do we go up? Because at the moment, and you talked about the the challenges we face at the moment with you know, housing affordability and construction costs and, and the like, is that it's very, very difficult to go up in a mid-rise form, form of development that, that they just don't seem to be stacking up. And the mid-rise form of development, and that's that sort of three to six stories. It doesn't stack up. Build costs it, are too high. It, it, does, it doesn't work. And that's the, the grand European tradition. The uh, only way you could possibly make it stack up is more height. And even that might still not be enough with the cost of construction yeah. right now. So I think, um, you know, if, if we're stuck with those those constraints of uh, you know construction prices and, and, and viability, then I, th- and, and knowing that we do have to keep going up, then I think the way in which we go up will change. And I think what we will see more of are uh, tower, tall tower developments on larger sites rather than mid-rise development on on, on single Well, that seems to be where the least friction is, right? It seems like it's easier for Paul Blackburn to get a 25-story apartment built in a zone that had been allowed for 10 or 13 or 15 because he can give back to the local realm on the ground floor with some marketplace or some greenery rather than your small-time developer trying to build four stories on a block that's zoned for three. I think you're right. It is easier to do as long as you're doing it in the right place. And then I think what becomes critical is then identifying where are the places around the Perth metropolitan area where those, you know, the, the hyper density, the, you know, the, the, the really tall towers and the larger density is most appropriate. And, you know, the, around the CBD, the Perth CBD, you know, within, um, you know, significant activity centres next to railway stations, important railway stations. 
that that becomes a, a challenge is how do you distribute density in that manner rather than this assumption that we can somehow roll R60, R80, R100 across large areas uh, and expect the market to deliver it when it can't. Well, you think about that zoning and you apply it to a Paris, for example. The whole of Paris is essentially an R100 site. No higher, no sh- shorter. Yeah, and, and everything in, in the WA context is is suggesting that we're going to struggle. To, we're going to struggle to do that, and that being able to deliver you know, the grand tradition of of urban design in the Perth context is sadly unrealistic. Well, it's unrealistic for a couple of reasons. One, the stage to nature of development, and therefore the stage nature of zoning and how it continues to slowly get more dense over time so you'll have buildings that are 20 years old that are capped out at five stories and the one next to it will have a zoning for eight stories and it will cap out there and so on and so forth over the next 100 years and maybe that building's still there in 100 years maybe it's not but also the opportunity in perth where you could be in an r80 zone and still build a one-story house no one's stopping you Yes, and and so we end up with uh, I, th- I think you used the phrase eclectic at the uh, at, at the beginning, and uh, and that will continue that that grand tradition of eclecticism that, uh, that that's endemic in the in the Perth environment, which as I said makes things interesting for me. Though I, I think the one thing that is really exciting as, as an opportunity and which has the ability to pull it all together is landscape and for me this has probably been the most significant revelation out of the whole design review panel process is that if you get good input from a, a landscape architect early on in in a project and introduce landscape as an integral part of the design solution that landscape can help to uh, to create a, a consistent character to a place you know we can, if, if you know we, we end up with a, a street that is uh, you know heavily landscaped whether it's in the verge and street trees in the front setback on the balconies that that starts to mitigate against the eclecticism of the architecture and and hold it together so what you're saying is the landscaping becomes the commonality yes. the common theme across the city exactly and look there is an opportunity there right and and you don't have to spend significant money to do that i remember driving through milan last year and seeing what would have been a 15-story charcoal-colored box. But the difference with it that made it stand out, that it was actually quite beautiful, is that wrapped around that charcoal box that had no architectural features on it whatsoever, but the architectural feature that came out of it was a pretty much a, a total encompassing of a meshed uh, greenery that wrapped around it. And you look at it and go... That actually wouldn't have been that expensive to build, but it looks really quite quite lovely to to uh, to experience from afar. Yeah, and I think you know, as far as bang for your bucks is concerned, uh, landscape is, uh, is 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 a pretty good tool to achieve it. Getting back to this original question about what is the future of Perth and its character, uh, I think landscape is a fundamental part of it. Uh, it's it's and it rings a bell with me because. When we travel overseas and we talk to other people, and, uh, and particularly people who have been to Perth at, at some point in the past, they always comment on the landscape qualities of Perth. And you know, they have their fondest memories of Kings Park, and and uh, you know they, they talk about you know the you know the beautiful tree-lined streets and and the, the a climate where stuff grows. 
would be a big difference because currently we are the worst city in Australia for that performance. Absolutely. And uh, and I think it's what's, there's a lot of debate around that at the moment. And a lot of that debate is around keeping existing vegetation where you're having re- redevelopment. I have a slightly different view on that. So do I. And, I. and my view is that, you know, if we're transitioning from a suburban environment to an urban environment, then the, the landscape task goes from the back of the lot to the public realm. And it's our, our streets and, and our parks, but, but particularly our streets, where we have the greatest opportunity to introduce landscape in a manner where the landscape can be seen and appreciated by everybody. So we're not talking about a tree 50 metres away from the street at the back of the lot that three residents will see. Uh, we're talking about a tree in the verge that thousands of people will see a, a, every day. Mm. Um, so I, I just have this vision for Perth in, in the future as this most amazing uh, garden city on a, on, a, on a whole new scale. And, 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 and that also resonates with my observations as a design review panel member. In recent years, there are 10 design principles in SPP7. There are three design principles that are being co- consistently focused on as the areas where people need to work harder and where there is more opportunity to improve and that is context and character. And I think landscape is an, is an enormous contributor to, uh, to character. Landscape quality speaks for itself. And the, and the third one that's being uh, pushed very heavily is sustainability. No surprise. And again, landscape is, a, is an important part of, uh, of sustainability. So There's nearly an easy way to get a few wins there is to focus on the landscape and quality and you might get three green ticks already. It would certainly, certainly help. And, and I, I say, it all, say it all the time in design review panels that uh, if, if you haven't got a landscape architect on board yet, get one on board. Seems like a booming industry. Ten years ago, it didn't exist. Now, you can't get one for weeks. Yeah, the market will adjust to, to meet, the, meet the demand. But it is an integral part of the design process. Malcolm Mackay, it's been a fantastic chat about urban design in Western Australia. There's obviously a lot of limitations at the moment that are holding us back in the planning space, but hopefully the design space is able to continue to come to the fore uh, and allow us to look back in 20, 30, 50 years at how beautiful our city has become. Well, thank you for the opportunity to, um, to shoot the breeze on it. Thanks, Malcolm. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!